Lord, we just again, we just uh, thank you so much for all the blessings that we receive from you, for the privilege to study your word, Lord, and for your presence here with us on Sunday morning, uh, the encouragement that we get, Lord, to, to carry on through the rest of our week. And we just uh, thank you for the fellowship we have in this church. And Lord, we thank you for your joy. You, you tell us in your word, Lord, that the joy that you give us is our strength. And Lord, we all want to be strong in what we do in this world. And Lord, uh, we, we want joy. And so uh, show us today just, just uh, how we get that joy, Lord, and how important it is to have that joy and, and the, about the true joy that we find in, in serving you and, and leading people to Christ. So, so teach us the lessons that you would teach us in this book today as only you can do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Again, Lord, we just thank you for the blood of Christ that uh, opens up our hearts to your spirit, and we just uh, ask for your presence here. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Now, I don't know about any of you, but you, do you, on your cell phone, do you ever use the emojis? You know what I'm talking about? And, you know, everybody's using those things now when they text people to kind of communicate what they're feeling. Well, there's, there's uh, you know, my favorite one probably, or my favorite ones are like the thumbs up or the thumbs down, you'll, if, you, if you text with me, you'll see that quite often. That's a real quick way of saying, yeah, I like it, or no, I don't. The other one that I like probably the most is the smiley face. The problem is today there's so many different kinds of smiley faces. I mean, they got a scroll of all these smiley faces, and you got to be really careful which smiley face you use. I had a lady call me the other day, and uh, she told me that they wanted to buy our house in Sunset, and I was really excited, so I just put me a smiley face on there and texted it back to her. And uh, she told me she was going to send us an offer later on in the day, and, and the offer didn't come. And so I, I went to text her back, and I looked at the smiley face that I'd sent her, and it was the one with the tongue hanging out the side of the mouth. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, man. This lady thinks I'm some kind of pervert. Or I'm licking my chops because I sold this crummy old house, you know. And, and I'm like, whoa, what am I going to do? And so I immediately texted her and I said, look, I'm, I'm so sorry. I sent you, I was outside and I guess I didn't see it right. And I sent you the wrong emoji and, and uh, uh, she put a smiling face, the real smiling face back. She said, thanks for the clarification because I was, I was certainly wondering a little bit about why you did that. But if you look at your bulletins today, I'm pretty sure we selected the right smiley face. And David tweaked it a little bit. You don't have this one on your phone. And he put a crown on that smiley face. And that fits perfectly with what Paul is going to try to teach us today. That true joy, you want to really put a smile on your face, you're going to find that in being in the will of God doing the will of God. Now, as believers, what is the will of God for our life? The will of God for our life is that as we go through this life, that we make disciples of other people. And when Christ returns, then those people that we disciple and that we bless and lead to the Lord, they will be our crown of joy. That's the lesson that he's going to teach us in this text today. So go with me to 1 Thessalonians and look in chapter 2 
And let's begin down in verse number one. And listen to what he says. He says, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, you talk about a guy with a smiley face. Paul always had a smiley face. He was always rejoicing. Remember how he encouraged us? He said, rejoice in the Lord, he says in Philippians. I say again, rejoice in the Lord. He says, I always want you to be smiling. I mean, I want to look out on this crowd. Every time I come here on Sunday, it's a lot easier for me when I look out there and y'all are smiling. When y'all are like this, it's pretty bad. But, but Paul was a guy, he, he, he exhorted people and he wanted them to smile. He wanted them to be happy. And, and uh, he had great joy. Why did Paul have great joy? Because he had it made. I mean, did Paul have it made? I mean, did he have a, a, a large bank account and a pad on the Riviera? No. What gave him joy was the fact that he knew that his work, the work that he was doing for the Lord, had eternal value. It was not in vain. And when he went to Thessalonica, he knew that the work that he had done there had not been in vain. And when you're in the will of God, doing the will of God, and you know that your work counts, then that's going to put a big old smile on your face, I can tell you right now. So go to verse number two. He says, but even after we had suffered, I mean, we came to you even after we had suffered and were spitely treated in Philippi. As you know, we were told, we were bold in God to speak to you the gospel of God uh, in much conflict, in much conflict. Paul rejoiced, he always rejoiced, but his work was done in much conflict. We know from the book of Acts, chapter 16, that right before Paul went to Thessalonica, where did he go? He went to Philippi. And you remember what happened to him in Philippi. He was casting out demons, and he cast out these demons from this possessed woman who was probably a prostitute, and was in all, she herself was involved in all sorts of witchcraft, and these businessmen were making money off of her. You could say these pimps were making money off of her. And when, they, when Paul cast the demons out of her, she was out of business. I mean, she wasn't any good to them anymore. And so they got mad, and they didn't want him doing that anymore, and so they dragged him into the market square, and they stripped him naked, and they beat him and Silas almost to death. And then they threw him into jail. And once they were in jail, you remember what happened? There was this great earthquake, and the earthquake broke their chains. Now, I don't know how an earthquake would break their chains. We knew it was a supernatural earthquake, so, so the angels just broke their chains. And the cell doors were open. And the Philippian jailer thought everybody had left, and so he grabbed a sword and was about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas said, hey, we're still here. We haven't gone anywhere. Why didn't they go anywhere? Because they knew what was going to happen to that Philippian jailer if they left. It shows you their love for people. And they didn't leave, and the Philippian jailer was impressed at the fact that they didn't leave and didn't want to know why they leave, and they explained to him, because we love Christ and we want you to know Christ. And he received Christ, and his whole family was saved. Well, was the victory won and everything grand? No, they still, the magistrates still kicked him out of town. They beat him again and kicked him out of town. I got to tell you, if I'm serving the Lord and I'm doing the right thing and I'm, you know, I'm not even escaping when the jails are open and I get beaten again and ridiculed again and humiliated again, I'm, gonna, I'm about ready to quit. 
But Paul didn't quit what Paul says right here in verse number two. After we were spitefully treated in Philippi, we came to you in much conflict. We came to help you in much. They went right back into the battle preaching the gospel. Why? Because they knew that they, their joy was found, rewards were found in doing the will of God and being in the will of God. And then listen to what Paul says in verse number three. He says, for our exhortation, exhortation did not come from error, uncleanness, cleanliness, nor was it in deceit. The message that we gave you was the unadulterated word of God. But we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so, that's what we speak. And listen, Paul says, not as pleasing man, but as pleasing God. Who, who, who test our hearts, who test all of our hearts. See, their message was the pure word of God. They didn't embellish it with lies. They didn't preach a message that would tickle man's ears. If it wasn't pleasing to some people, they didn't care because who were they trying to please? Their goal wasn't to please man. Their goal was to please God. You know, I love the word of God. You probably have figured that out by now. I love the Word of God, and, and I believe the Word is full of great news. Psalms 119, the psalmist says, How sweet is your word to taste, sweeter than honey to the mouth. And that's, that's a great description of most of this Word. But the Bible also describes the Word in the book of Hebrews as sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the soul of the spirit of man. I mean, so most of the words going to put this big smile on your face, but most of it's going to give you one of those faces where you're crying. It's going to hurt. I mean, a lot of it's going to, not most of it, but a lot of it's going to, it's going to hurt because it's like a sword. And listen, those preachers who only give you the honey and never give you the sword are deceivers because the Bible has, it, it convicts and it cuts. And you got to get that part in order to get where you can taste the honey. If God doesn't convict us and cut us and humble us and bring us to a point where we're humbled before him, you'll never taste the honey. And so you got to get it all. So Paul says in verse 5, for, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a, for, a, for, a, for a, you could say, for a cloak of covetousness. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have done so. We might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul says, we didn't come to flatter you so that we can profit from you. You know what? You can increase the size of a church by flattering people. You can get them to give more money by flattering them. Maybe I ought to try that a little bit. You all look really good today. David, see if our offerings go up. See if this works. Y'all are all so wonderful. You guys are just absolutely marvelous. You, you, you know, I know none of you have sinned this week. Y'all are the most wonderful people in the world. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of that kind of teaching going on. Again, it's all the honey and no sword. And you flatter people. Paul says, we didn't come to flatter you so we could gain advantage from you. We didn't come to be flattered. Paul didn't want to be flattered. He wasn't interested in being flattered. Now, if anybody could have been flattered, it, you, you want to lay on some accolades, you could lay them on Paul, couldn't you? 
Because, I mean, Paul was the greatest apostle on earth. He was maybe the greatest man on the earth at that time. He probably was the greatest. And I know in God's eyes, he was probably the greatest man on earth at that time. So he certainly could have asked for some, done some things that he could have taken advantage of, but he didn't do that. He says, no, we came to save you. We came to disciple you. We, and that's what puts a smile on our face. That's what Paul's saying. That's what makes us rejoice. We, we didn't come as celebrities to lord over you. And now he's going to use some metaphors here. He's going to say, we came like nursing mothers, like loving fathers. Look at verse number 7. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her, cherishes her own children. What a heart Paul had. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing more loving than a mother nursing her little child. I mean, nurturing her little child, encouraging her little child. So Paul says in verse number 8, So affectionately longing for you were we, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also, watch this, our own lives because you had become dear to us. We were ready to give you our lives. We were ready to die for you, Paul says, because we loved you so much, just like a mother loves her child. I mean, you just observe the animal world. I was driving to church this morning, and I saw this little bird attacking this crow that was trying to get in her nest. This crow was 100 times bigger than this little bird, but that little bird was willing to die to save her young. That's the way Paul felt about these Thessalonians. He was ready, ready to risk death, death in order to save them. And then he says in verse number 9, he goes on with this metaphor. He says, For remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We work our, to, 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 to make our way. We work to get you saved. We work to disciple you. We never stop working as we preach to you the gospel of God. Just like a mother works. A loving mother works for her children. There's nothing like a mother loving her children and working for her children. Nothing like that. You know, there's the old saying, a father's work is from son to son, a mother's work is never done. You watch a loving mother Nurture her children and work for her children. She might work in a job. She might work at home. Some mothers work in a job, and they work at home. God bless those kind of mothers that work night and day in order to take care of their children. They never cease caring for their kids. And Paul says, that's the way we cared for you. And that's the way you and I should care for one another. We should never stop serving one another. We should never stop working for one another, laboring in the gospel of Jesus Christ, laboring to get those co-workers saved, laboring to get our relatives saved, laboring in prayer, laboring in kindness, laboring in love. And now Paul turns to the metaphor of the father. And man, this would make a great Father's Day message right here. Look at, look at what he says about fathers. He says, you are witnesses. He says, you are witnesses in verse number 10. And God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you 
as a father does his own children. And what was the charge? That you walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Man, what a wonderful description of Paul's feelings and actions toward the Thessalonians, or for the, uh, the Thessalonians. I mean, uh, Paul was like a father to these people. I mean, these were his Christian sons and his Christian daughters. And really, this is a great description, dads, right here, of what we should be like in our relationship with our children. And it's a description, really, of how we all should treat one another. Look, listen to what he says. He says, first of all, we behave devoutly, devoutly and justly and blamelessly among the believers. What did he mean by all that? Well, he meant that he was, we were setting an example as, as, as to how a believer should live for these young believers. First of all, in his devotion to God. What is devotion to God? What does it mean to be devoted to God? I mean, what is it? I mean, are you devoted to God? Let me tell you how you know if you're devoted to God. If God is on the throne of your soul, you're devoted to God. I mean, if being devoted to God is spending quality time with God in his word, in worship, and in prayer, that's what it means to be devoted to God. And then it says, Paul right here says he also, he treated each of these Thessalonians fairly, justly. I mean, doesn't a, shouldn't a father treat his children fairly? A father doesn't show partiality to the various children in his home. He treats all of his children the same. He treats them all justly. And that's the way Paul treated the Thessalonians, and that's the way we should treat one another. And then look what else he says here. He says he walked blamelessly in godliness, I mean, in the sight of these believers. And what was he doing there? He was setting an example of them of what a good Christian should be. I mean, that's the way a good father should be. He should walk blamelessly in godliness and set an example for his children. For many fathers, I mean, it's do what I say, not do what I do. But you're kidding yourselves. If you think you can talk your kids into doing the right thing, your kids are going to follow in your uh, footsteps. Children are a lot more likely to do what you do than do what you say. So let what you say be what you do, and then they'll do what you say. That's the way we should treat our children. And then he exhorted them, and, and he comforted them, and he gave them a charge. I mean, i got to tell you something, Dad. We need to be our children's greatest cheerleaders, moms too. We need to be, look, we need to cheer each other on. We all need to be our greatest cheerleaders. We don't, you know, shame on us as Christians if we're putting each other down. We should never be putting each other down. We should be comforting each other. We should be cheering each other on. And then we need to be giving young believers a charge. Fathers, you need to give your children a charge. I need to give you a charge. You need to give other believers a charge. And what's that charge? That we walk worthy of God. I mean, that we do everything that we do to the glory of God. You know what? You want to live a rich life in Jesus Christ. Do all that you do to the glory of God. You do that and you're going to be blessed. You're going to, be, you're going to have a, a, a really joyful life. And i got to tell you something, nothing brings you more joy than to see those that you give that charge to 
living a spiritual life for the glory of God. Listen to what Paul says in verse 13. He says, for this is the reason we also thank God without ceasing. Man, Paul had to pray without ceasing. He was always praying for other believers. He was always thanking God without ceasing. He was always praying without ceasing. And he's going to tell us in, in either 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians, I'm drawing a blank right now, but at the end of one of those books, he's going to exhort us to pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean that you're always in your closet and you're praying and you never stop praying. That means that you just live in an attitude that you're in a relationship with God, an omnipresent God who is with you always. And so when good things happen, you're thanking God. When bad things happen, you're not thanking God. <laughs> no, you're still thanking God. And you, th you think of the things to thank God for. And, and so Paul could always think of a good reason to, even though he was being beaten, he could still thank God. I thank God for you, uh, Thessalonians. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Now watch this. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Which, all, which also effectively works in everyone, in you who believe, in everyone who believes. How were these believers able to live for the glory of the Lord in such difficult circumstances? Because they have received the word of God, and it was doing its work in changing them into the image of Jesus Christ. But listen to me. The miracle of sanctification, where we're changed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ, only takes place when we receive this word from Genesis to Revelation as the word of God and not as the word of men. How many times have you heard people say, well, that's just a bunch of words written by a bunch of men? No, this is the word of God. It's written through men, but it's written by God to us. That's why John and Jude and Peter went to such expense or spent so much time warning us about false teachers because there's a lot of teachers out there who water down this word. There's a, they water it down because they don't believe this word. They cut out the parts they don't like. And whenever you change this word in any way, whenever you take out the parts you don't like, then what you do, it, it, you make it the word of man and not the word of God. For this to be the word of God, you've got to believe that every single word of it from Genesis to Revelation is given to you by God himself. And if you want this Bible to work in your life, if you want it to change you and give you the kind of victory in life that you're looking for, if you want to be changed to the image of Christ, then first of all, you've got to read it. And then second of all, you've got to, second of all, you've got to come to it with the presupposition that you believe that it is the living word of God. Well, pastor, how do you know that? I know that. I know that, I know that down in my soul. As much as I know my name's George, I know that this Bible is the Word of God. 
And I, and I used this passage last week, and I've used it on several occasions recently because we've been talking about false teachers and people who dilute this word and pollute this word. But remember what Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 17. He said, whoever is willing to obey this word will know that this word is true. Will know that my doctrine's true. So if you're having a trouble believing that this is really the word of God, let me tell you how you're going to know it's the word of God. You're going to know that by the spirit of God. And if you're having trouble believing that this is truly the word of God, probably it's because you really don't want to obey this word and you really don't want to read it. Because you don't want to really obey it, you don't want to read it. Most, the reason people don't want to read this thing is because it does convict. It does change us. It wants to change us from being worldly, dark, evil creatures into the image of Christ. And until you're ready to make that change, you're never going to know that this is the word of God. But man, what you say, I'm going to do that then you're going to know that this, you're going to know that you know that you know that this is the very word of God. Then at verse number 14, he says, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God. I mean, you were just like the churches of God in Jerusalem is what he's about to say, which were in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, from the Romans, that they were suffering from the Judeans. I mean, just as the Jews persecuted the church in Israel, you were being persecuted by your own countrymen. And now he's going to go and on with this indictment of the Jews. Listen to what he says in verses 15 and 16. This is pretty rough. He said, who killed, he's speaking of the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus Christ and their very own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. That's why he was beaten in Philippi. That's why he had trouble in Thessalonica and had to leave there because uh, there were Jews there and there were Gentiles there that forbid them to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. But, but, but you can understand the Gentiles doing that, but you can't understand the Jews doing that. He says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, in other words, God was just about fed up with them, is what Paul's saying. For the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, you can read that again, but that's a pretty unflattering statement about the Jews, or a pretty unflattering description of the Jews right there. I mean, these are Paul's own people. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, these people, these Jews that Paul is, is dissing here, are the apple of God's eye. But he puts the blame squarely on them for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I don't take that too far because Paul also put the blame squarely on himself. He called himself the chief of sinners. He also put the blame squarely on you, not me. Yeah, me too, I'm afraid. He put the blame on them for the martyrdom of the Old Testament prophets. They killed their own prophets. The men who were the mouthpieces of God, they actually killed those prophets. And they were continuing their evil ways by doing everything they could to stop the missionary work of Paul and his fellow missionaries in taking the gospel to the Gentiles, the Gentiles that they hated. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Why did they even care if the Gentiles got saved or not? If Jesus was the phony they thought he was, then what difference did it make? Let me tell you why. Because they were of the devil. They were of the devil. Listen, 
for the Jews to hate Christ. That is demonic. For the Jews to hate the Gentiles, that is demonic. For the Gentiles to hate Jews like Hitler hated the Jews, like some of these Muslims hate the Jews, that is demonic. But for the Jews to hate those who are helping those who they hate, that's absurdly demonic. That's crazy. But you see a picture of that in what's going on in our society today. And I'm not, if you're, if you're here today and you're a homosexual, don't raise your hand, but, but I'm not picking on you. But I, I get the biggest kick. I, I don't get the biggest kick. I, it just really bat, it baffles me why homosexuals love Muslims. They ought to go on YouTube and see the Muslims throwing homosexuals off the top of five-story buildings. You can see that on YouTube, and you can watch them crash. And you don't think they'd do that if they took over the United States of America? The liberal professors that just love Muslims and hate Christians? Why do they hate Christians and love Muslims? Those Muslims would take their heads off if they took over this country. How can you be so absurd in the way you feel about different groups of people? Let me tell you why, because it's demonic. It's demonic. I mean, who cared? I mean, why would the Jews care that Paul was getting Gentiles saved? You know, you know it just shows that the faith, you want to you prove that Christianity is real? Look at how it's persecuted. Look at how it's persecuted. I'm talking, about real I'm talking about real Christianity here. Look at how it's persecuted throughout this world, how it's got to be silent. You can go in with all sorts of false religions, but, man, you go in with Christianity, they want that silent. You know why? Because it's the truth. It's the truth. And it does save people. It does change people. It does cause rebellions and revolts and changes in society that some groups don't want to happen. The devil doesn't want it to happen, and he controls most of these governments, and that's why Christianity is persecuted. But God was fed up with it at this point. And so Paul says their cup of rebellion, their cup, yeah, their cup of rebellion was full, and the wrath of God was about to come on to them, uh, upon them to the uttermost. When Paul penned these words, the Jews were just a few years away from being wiped out as a nation. They, in 70 AD, Titus came in there, and you can get, uh, go and read the writings of Josephus about the siege of Jerusalem and what happened to the Jews during that siege, how millions of them were slaughtered, babies were thrown up against the wall, mothers' wombs were cut open, and the babies were taken out, they threw them up against the wall, and they slaughtered almost all of the Jews, and the few that were left, the remnant that was left, they scattered them throughout the world, and the nation was gone. It was gone forevermore if it wasn't for the fact that God wanted that nation as part of his plan for end times. And they're still the apple of his eyes, and all of Israel will be saved. Not these Jews, but at some point, all of Israel will be saved. God still has a plan for Israel. But, but uh, boy, they were about to really be in trouble. And then we finish up here, verse 17 and 18. He says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in, in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. Watch this. We all need to get this if, you, if you're serving God. But Satan hindered us. 
Let me ask you a question. If Satan could hinder the work of the Apostle Paul who prayed without ceasing, you think maybe he could hinder your work? You think maybe he could hinder your work with your children? You think maybe he could hinder your work at your workplace where you're trying to win people over to Christ? You better believe he could hinder it. He can hinder your work. I mean, Paul had only spent three weeks in Thessalonica and he was run out of town. But, but he loved the people there and he loved this thriving church and he wanted to see them. And so time after time after time, he made plans to go there to see them, but Satan hindered him. Hindered the great apostle Paul. Look, anyone who serves God needs to realize we forget this sometimes. But if you serve God, if you're a true born-again believer, you and I have an adversary, and his name is Satan, and he will fight us tooth and nail for every inch of territory that we try to take for the kingdom of God. Now, let me tell you what, Satan's not bothering you. If Satan's not bothering you, it's because you're not trying to take any territory. But the minute you get into the game, and get off the bench, and you decide, I'm going to take some territory at my work. I'm going to take some territory in my home. I'm going to take charge of my home. I'm going to take charge in, in, in the sense of, of leading my family and my workers to Christ. I'm going to take charge of this situation. The minute you do that, you've got an adversary, and his name is Satan. I mean, just try to, just try to pray. I mean, just, just try to go home and pray and watch how Satan comes into your prayers, how he comes into your thoughts, and you start thinking about, man, what are we going to eat for lunch today? You know, I mean, it shows up, and then he says, man, you're so carnal, you can't even pray. Oh, you're right. So you get up and go eat. You know, get in there and fight. You got an adversary. Don't quit. If you, got, if you can't do anything else in the kingdom of God, you can pray, but you're going to have an adversary. And, and Satan can discourage you. And let me tell you what, Satan can get you to quit. He can get you to quit. You can quit because God gives you the choice to quit. Be careful. Some of y'all haven't been on Wednesday night when we've been studying Jonah. God has wells that he can that swallow you. It's not healthy to quit. You keep going or you'll find yourself in the belly of some well-like experience. I can tell you that right now. But listen, Satan's gonna, Satan is even going to win some battles. He's going to win a lot of battles. But here's the good news. He's never going to win the war. The war is already won. Jesus Christ has won the war. And that's a, listen to what Paul says in the last two verses, and we finish here. For what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even Paul didn't say, well, it's, 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 the, it's the eternal life I'm going to get when I get to heaven. It's, it's, that, it's that mansion on, on the, you know, down at the end of this golden street. You're going to see the biggest mansion of all because I'm Paul the apostle. He doesn't see that things that way. Be careful of people who do. You know what he sees as his crown of joy? You see what his hope is? You. You. You people who we've labored for like a mother and like a father, like brother uh, like a brother, like a sister. We've, we've labored for you. And no matter how much Satan hinders our work, we're going to have joy one day in the presence of the Lord. When? Get ready, folks. At his coming. 
and he's coming soon. For you, Paul says, are our glory and our joy. You're our joy. Paul, you know what he's saying right here? You know, Satan can keep us from coming to see you right now. But he's not going to be able to do that forever. Because the Lord is at the door. And the Lord could show up at any moment for his church. And Paul says when he shows up for his church, guess what? I'm going to be with the Lord. And you're going to be there too. And you will be our glory and our joy. You will be our reward. Because it was through our efforts to some degree that you were saved and you were sanctified and made ready for the coming of the Lord. And guys, when we get there, he says, we're going to be together forever. Perfect peace. Perfect joy. Every tear wiped. So you want to get that frown off your face? Then get busy doing the will of God for your life, in your home, in your workplace, wherever God's placed you. You got an opportunity to serve the Lord. And that's where you're going to find true joy. Now, if you're here today, you've never been born again, you know we're near finding that joy. I mean, the greatest joy is, is, is knowing the Lord. But the joy for a believer, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of worth, the sense of value, where you're not living your life in vain, as Paul spoke of earlier, that comes in, in serving God. Now, you might not win anybody to Christ, but at least if you're trying, you're going to find that joy. And when you do get that opportunity to disciple people, when you do get the opportunity to lead people to the Lord, that's where you're going to find really great joy in this life. And if you do that, you find the, God, the Lord's will, and you do the Lord's will, when the Lord comes, let me tell you about the emoji you're going to have. It's going to be a big old smiley face with a crown on your head. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to serve you in this life. Lord, we thank you most of all for the, your salvation, for your, your blood that was shed for us on the cross so that we do uh, now call ourselves Christians, Lord, that we, we're more than just call ourselves Christians. We are Christians. We are your children, Lord. And Lord, as your children, we want to serve you. We want to be... Uh, in your will, doing your will all the time. So show us, Lord. Show us where you want us. Show us, show us how we can best serve you. Show us how we best can find the joy that you want to give us. Because we know that your joy is our strength. Lord, if there's anyone here today who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, I just ask that today be the day of their salvation, that you open their hearts to, to receive Jesus Christ, Lord, and, and let the wonderful journey that you have for plan for them begin this very day. Lord, we just thank you for, again for, for our Savior. We thank you for his blood. We thank you for all you're doing in our lives through Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.